My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. I'm so happy to have you on the show to hear your story and learn all about Marley's Mutts uh, and cool, you know man. what you're doing, man. So this is this is super cool, dude. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. My mom is uh, one of my favorite people and my kind of my co-conspirator when it comes to sobriety. I think probably everyone in this family should be should be pursuing sobriety, but she, she and I are the two that have made it and uh, it feels really good. It does, doesn't it? I'm, uh, I'm yeah. about three years in, <clears throat> clean from alcohol, cocaine, and, and nicotine, cigarettes. I smoked Parliament Menthol Lights, so I did a little extra damage oh, with the wow. menthol bit. Uh, and I picked, I, I smoked- Were you heavy into raving? I mean, I, <laughs> or did, you, did you hang out with a lot of non-whites? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I just love the menthol. The story, my, my uncle, uh, I've sm- I started out smoking Marlboro lights and I ran out of cigarettes. He had cool miles at the time. And yeah. so I bummed a few off of him and I smoked cool miles for years. And then, cause they were doing like buy one pack, get two free. So you got like three packs for one. I had sure. no money at all. Still don't have any money, but the, as I grew older, I just, it just kind of manifested and it turned into parliament menthol lights. And what's great about those, they have the recess filter. So you could hit bumps with the back end of the filter. Sure can. It's like a little button. It really yeah. is, man. It's yeah. so it's like it a was fingernail deal. It was, it was pretty scooter. effective, but I came from, I did come from the kind of the late night club scene. I managed and bartended and did all of that shit. And yeah, uh, me too. so, yeah, you hit it on the head, man. Um, yeah. But, I didn't smoke Parliament, although I did smoke Parliament lights, and I had a phase of menthols. That's why I asked if you were if you were hanging around with non-whites. There was a six-month period where all I did was smoke menthols because all my friends were black. Yeah. That's all they smoked. That's all I could bum, and uh, yeah, it did a number on me for sure. It's and funny. I, no, moved, none of my none I of my black friends them. smoke. Um, not one of them. And if they did, uh, this was in the nineties. Yeah, Newports. Let me. Am I guess? Am I right? Newports for sure. Yeah, yeah, Newports were the were the deal. Those were rough, man. I, I like they. Every time I took a drag off a of Newport, I felt like somebody punched me in the chest. Yeah, they were rough for sure. <laughs> so, 
We, awesome. we digress. We, we, we got off on a, on a nicotine tangent. No, no, it's, but, it's all uh, part of it. Any of the three pins for me that fall, nicotine, mm-hmm. cigarette, a drink, whether it's a beer, a glass of wine, a shot, a cocktail, whatever, or a bump, and I'm off on a fucking bender, and I, I, I've got to stay off any of it. So if, if I do one, all three go. So I got to be careful. Yeah. I'm a trifecta. trifecta. It's interesting you bring that up. I, I, um, I bitterly clung to nicotine. Uh, and I was never a 24 hour smoker. Like I, I, I bitterly clung to nicotine and um, I didn't quit nicotine until probably seven years ago. I'm, I'm 12 years sober and didn't quit nicotine until then, but I was smoking at night and it was my time. I integrated it with my meditation. So I had, I, it was this really brilliant way of, of mentally fucking myself into holding on to right. smoking. Cause I was like, you know, this is fucking personal wellness that yeah. I'm engaged in. I'm right. outside, I'm in my hammock. I'm looking at the stars. I'm, I'm working on my conscious contact with God. Yeah. I'm having two or three smokes in a row, you know, <laughs> but that was my deal. I, I felt like, you know, cause we can justify anything, you know? anything, absolutely anything. I can, I can uh, really, pull a number and that's what i did for the longest time was convince myself that my smoking actually went up you know in early sobriety which is funny my, my closeted smoking and then once i got rid of that it was a lot easier to uh yeah <laughs> to be clear of everything the hardest of the three for me to give up the day-to-day so first of all like my backstory i'm episode one is my story i figured i had to kick off my own podcast about addiction and recovery with my story sure. it wouldn't be fair to just hide yeah, who is this guy yeah what the <laughs> hell is this guy talking about so i um but the, the only thing that i do have more of an impulse from time to time if i get itchy i get itchy for blow not a drink and not cigarettes mm-hmm. it's the yeah weird. i feel you there definitely yeah. feel you there like for i see i had a i had a definite spiritual awakening when it came to alcohol i mean i was in liver failure when when i got sober i mean i was dying of liver failure and i definitely after about a year had had really a spiritual awakening something where that consisted of the urge to drink which was completely enveloping i mean the urge to drink for me was like the urge to breathe or not even just the urge to it was the urge to not feel anxiety and pain and fear and, and all that um and it went away with alcohol after about a year, but with, with, I did so much cocaine and such a variety of different stimulants for so long that, um, a lot of my, it's connected to a lot of my dreams. It's connected to a lot of trauma. It's connected to a lot of, for whatever reason, you know, the memories are stronger. I think probably the dope dopamine and serotonin kind of perturbations are more extreme. So everything's just more intense. You know, the, the fights were more intense. The, yeah. the, the breaking of the law was more intense. The, personal interactions were more intense the missions to go cop were more intense you know there was you know you got to worry about rob being robbed or robbing you know there's all that stuff that comes along with with crack for me crack well i mean i did every type of cocaine but yeah man it was it, it still perked up and i thought i was doing something wrong for a very long time i was even um, ashamed about it you know with my first sponsor i i could, he was a police officer a detective and i never felt fully comfortable speaking to him about cocaine especially yeah, crack I would agree. because that would be that would be challenging i think as you're yeah. like is this gonna go south on me although he's just well, right yeah, but, well, yeah. truthfully dude i gave a i gave a bullshit basically a bullshit series of steps starting with four um <laughs> to see what his reaction would be you know because i didn't really know much about how this worked yeah and when i was working my steps with him i was still sick still 
not not necessarily going to live um, surviving liver failure. And I just didn't know if there was a statute of limitations. I mean, yeah. some of the stuff I, I talked about was really heavy. I mean, there was there were real crimes being committed. And, and I didn't know if, you know, I mean, I'm pretty I just didn't know the lay of the land then. So no, I, I, I gave him I a complete bullshit way. fourth and fifth. And then I gave him um, a more, you know, then I gave him you know, tested the waters. And then I was much more honest with him. And it felt uh, it felt great after that. I mean, he actually shared with me some really, really wonderful things about his own his own time out there while he was on duty. So, you know, we're all just alcoholics and it's the best thing about making connections in the program yeah. is, is you can, you can apps, there's the common variables that we share are so, despite us being fundamentally different people are so extreme and so wonderful and so um, connecting and, and deserve to be celebrated, you know? Yeah. I mean, the narrative, the details that are narrative might be different, but the through lines are all the same. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all chasing it, trying to fill holes emotionally yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, whatever that might mean for each individual, but the through lines are pretty consistent. So for, yep. for you, um, if we could back up a little, if you maybe just tell us a little bit about how things kind of ramped up in terms of, I call it pre-addiction. I am not a doctor, but I just stage mm. it that way to hear a little people's pre-story to the addiction mm. um, and what kind of got you there, um, if sure. you don't mind. Well, I always valued alcohol. The alcohol was valued in my house. Both of my houses, my parents split up. I have a twin brother. My parents split when we were six months old and we were both severely premature, almost two months. So my brother had just gotten home from the hospital when they split. I mean, it was a, I don't remember any of it, obviously, but we grew up in a, in a separated household and in both households, drink was very central. So anything that went on in any of those, either of those houses, you know, my dad drank every day when he got home from work. My mom did the same. My mom was much more of a partier. She had people over all the time. And so my aspirations were always to be old enough to drink, to carry myself like that. I, you know, I, I um, was a very grown up little kid. Yeah. You know, I had been around the world and was pretty cultured. And, and, and so I, I fancied myself someone who could participate in these conversations. And that's what I wanted. I always equated alcohol with alcohol and even alcoholism with being an adult and being taken seriously. So it was something that I always... Um, my heroes were all alcoholics, you know, and yeah. uh, the people I, re I read were alcoholics. You know, I had like a beat generation flare up because of my brother. And, and, and then even the music I listened to, you know, it was all I grew up in Hermosa Beach, California, which is you know the South Bay is a very punk rock, hard drinking, hard fighting, hard using um, place. And so it's just very much part of the culture. And, you know, um, couple that with traumas as a kid some things that happened to me as a, as a child that really confused me sexually in terms of what was comfortable for me and what wasn't, you know, some really, really unfair, unfortunate interactions with um, that catalyzed a, a lot of darkness in me. I, I didn't know, you know, when you're abused as a kid, you don't, I know this now because I've been in therapy for years, but you don't realize how things affect you. You just think you're messed up. You just know you're broken. And that's what I just thought I was. I mean, when I was really young, I didn't know if I was gay. When I was older than that, I thought something was, you know, I couldn't be around women. I just could not be around women with, without a, intense feelings of fear. And not fear like anxiety of, oh boy, what, what's going to happen? We might get frisky. But fight or flight, you know, there was alarm bells going off in my head. And I didn't know what that meant. And I was an attractive young man when I was younger and you know, I was getting all this attention from females and I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I'd get made fun of for that. And I was never comfortable. And really the only thing that helped me address that 
anxiety, that constant feeling of, um, of uncomfortableness during puberty was, was alcohol. So I started to drink young and started to use young. All my friends started to drink and use, and, and um, it was just par for the course. Everyone I knew drank and used, you know, and, and that's what I aspired, aspired to do as well. And even when things got terrible, I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic at 17. I was drinking every day at 17 and I knew it. And I, I remember even the, the hip hop group, the alcoholics, I loved their music and I loved talking about it. You know, yeah. um, if I'm too drunk to walk, I'll rock a party on crutches. You know, that's what <laughs> I was all about. You know what I mean? And it just escalated. It just, you know, all the things I had achieved um, in, you know, I kind of peaked when I was 14, right? You know, the, all the best college prep classes and right. all the best sports and I was doing great and performing well and sure you know I introduced cannabis and and drinking you know 40s and cannabis into my life and you don't think you don't realize how they affect you in the moment and they affect everybody differently but that was kind of the beginning of the end for me and by the time I started college at San Diego State I was fully addicted yeah and really just trying to manage at that point, you know, my emotions, I knew that I didn't know how to feel my emotions. And the best way for me to feel my emotions was clouded with alcohol, because then I didn't really have to feel and then that became a pattern for a long time. Called rampage drinking in eighth grade, and just carried that through. But I took breaks during at the beginning of my drinking career, I took breaks during the week, because I and then on the weekends, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, he's passed. So I would rampage drink. So I was really a binge drinker for a long time until, until I wasn't. And then I started drinking pretty much Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You know how it is. And then it grew Nearly up. like a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Nice work. I really carried that and then introduced, never like pot, introduced cocaine and then the fucking wheels came off, man. Holy yeah. shit. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's in, a good in, point. I, I just, let's talk about that for a minute. What people... The, the dark side of cocaine. I mean, between the time I first started, I first took cocaine, I think I was 15 or 16. And the time I was selling cocaine in very dangerous circumstances, I was 19, mm -hmm. you know, and where caution was completely thrown to the wind. Completely thrown I didn't have to the any, wind. Didn't have any money, didn't have any anything, but knew I needed that. And all focus of all attention went to that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's the, the most dark, disappointing, uh, shameful, humiliating circumstances all stem from a lot of that, you know, that that lifestyle and just putting myself in situations that are that I cannot believe to this day that that was me, you know, in terms of hurting people and being hurt, you know, situations that I think about now that would cause me to have a heart attack. You know, I was I was neck deep involved in yeah. and I can't believe I was the same person. I mean, it truly Alcohol and drugs, especially cocaine, truly, truly morph your mental chemistry to the point where you, know, you, you can't really ever make positive decisions. And I feel like cocaine, it was stimulants in general. There's there this monster, this amorphous monster that is um, that is just, you know, pulling you in in, in different ways. And, and it's got such a chaotic energy that when you're using cocaine or stimulant, it's just pulling any kind of chaos into your life you know, everything it, you're like a fucking just, magnet for disaster you are a magnet for disaster exactly and that's that's definitely what happened with and and you feel it too you feel how it wears on your body and you know if you've ever been on some you know several day or week-long benders they're just you know you feel like the years come off your physiology oh yeah you know? yeah dude in in the 
the chaos of it all and the constant. So your moral compass points wherever it needs to point when you're on blow so that you can either continue partying or set up for the next party. And, and what yeah. I try to explain to people is that it's not just when you're high, it's this, it consumes everything. Cause it's about the setup to get high, yeah. then you're high and then they come down. And when you're coming down and you're feeling like I'm going to call it in people can't see this, but air quotes getting to normal again, cause you're off mm-hmm. the, you're telling your vendor, you've maybe slept a little bit you're feeling a little bit better, but then you wake up and you're immediately pursuing the next, the next fucking line. And it, you start to set that up, that chaos up and it becomes this, and you make bad decisions. Thankfully, I never got a DUI or anything like that, but it caused me because I was never sleeping. I was eating like shit. I was drinking. I was drinking to ladder down from the blow at yeah. deeper, darker levels of drinking where I'd be sitting in my garage and slamming, you know, a 12 pack of beer, a half a bottle of Telemore Dew or a full bottle of Telemore Dew whiskey. And yeah. doing fucking blow um, yeah. off of the tail end of those parliament menthol lights we talked about earlier, or just straight up lines or keys or whatever. And this is your episode, but I'm just saying like for the listeners, like it, it spins out of fucking control and you don't even realize how out of fucking control you are until mm-hmm. you look back. Like you said, and you're like, I can't fucking believe that was me. It's nuts. And, and I, you know, I'm not a proponent. I, and I, I don't try to turn this into like a moralization of anything, but I do think that there's a lot to be said for, well, there's two things. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I do think that the people you spend your time with and who you use to justify your own actions have a big impact mm-hmm. on you. And I'm not saying okay. alcoholism and addiction were my fault. The choices that I made. But I think that you're more prone to make bad decisions if you're with people that are making bad decisions. Sure. And then the other yeah, thing, are- like the, the gateway layer of it, where it might just feel like a drink or it might just feel like you're hitting a joint or it might. What, if you start to justify, oh, it'll be fine. It's just one. That's the fucking gateway. And I, and, I, right. and I try to explain to people, the best way to not be an addict or an alcoholic is to just fucking not do it, if you can help it. Yeah, for people to, I mean, it's, it's pretty ridiculous for me because I remember very well my mind frame. I remember the justification for just about every time I use drugs. And I, I can tell you, you know, when the first time I took cocaine, the my entire rationalization was because I'd been smoking weed for like a year and a half. And I go, well, dude, what, what, you know, that, so to say, I, I have no, I really don't have a problem with cannabis. I, yeah. I don't, I don't have a problem with, with a lot of drugs. I don't have a problem with psychedelics. I have a problem. I'm not saying that I, I use psychedelics, you know, but I don't have a problem with, with these things like I do with, like I do with stimulants. Um, and I'm not sure where, where I'm where I'm going there. I don't know that I want to to dive into the to that deep of a hole. But um, but yeah, to kind of wrap up the if we could circle back to the sure. the trauma thing and kind of what what led me into it. it well, let me just hover on the get, the gateway aspect. Maybe we can edit out my stumble. The the gateway thing is important because you know it, it is what led me into a lot worse drugs. I mean, if if I believe that probably if cannabis would have been legal back then, I I may have not ended up using stimulants i mean i have no idea but right certainly there were a lot of certainly drinking certainly just the the lifestyle is going to lead to those things and and it, it would be dishonest if you're if you're studying the arc of anyone's disease to not say that this didn't lead to something else it may have led to it regardless you may have ended up there anyway but things are certainly expedited by um circumstances in your life and uh it was for me you know drugs yeah. drugs and alcohol for me led to more drugs and alcohol Definitely. Uh, they pile on for sure. And people can dissect that any way they'd like, but mm-hmm. one thing leads to the next. 
for sure. So in terms of the transition to, and I, this isn't a gladiator school, so we don't, I don't really spend a lot of time talking about how much you drank or how many lines and none of that. We did, let's just all agree that we all have lived through some shit. So then when you hit the, the breaking point, rock bottom, if you want to call it, like, what was that? What did that look like for you uh, in terms it of- It looked terrible. So I'll, I'll give, this is a pretty good description. So in around the beginning of the year, 2008, I started to turn yellow and I started to swell up. So my belly started to get big, maybe even earlier than that, maybe even earlier on in 2007, but it just takes a while to develop. So imagine I'm five foot 11, I'm starting to get very skinny, but my belly is getting huge. I'm starting to turn yellow and purple and gray. And my eyes are totally yellow. And at that point, I know something bad is happening, but I'm too scared to go to the doctor, try to hide it for as long as possible. Finally go to the doctor. I'll never forget this nurse comes back and she goes, she sits down with this stack of paper. She looks at me and she says, honey, you are in liver failure and you need to leave this hospital and you need to go to us to the hospital in Bakersfield immediately. And I left, went out to the parking lot and told my dad that everything was fine, that I just needed to stop drinking hard alcohol and doing drugs and that I should stick to wine with meals because that would help. I just completely lied. I, I'm, I'm facing, <laughs> I mean, she's, she said, you have end stage liver failure. And as soon as I got checked into the hospital, my doctor Aziz, one of my gastroenterologists came in and said, you know, your son to my dad said, your son needs a liver transplant and he's not going to get one. Um, you know, you need six months of sobriety to get a liver transplant. So I was in full end stage liver failure. My stomach just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It was like, I looked nine months pregnant. So then one of the first things they did was tap me. They put a, it's called paracentesis. They stick a gigantic needle into your, either through your pregnant belly or in your back through your rib, basically above your ribs. And they drain your abdominal cavity. You know, when your liver is not functioning, all that bile and blood that's being pushed up through the hepatic duct to be filtered in the liver is not being filtered. It's just backing up and it backs up into the abdominal cavity. So you see people like me with ascites with this huge belly. That's what that is. That's liver failure. And hmm. your kidneys aren't functioning. Your gallbladder is not functioning. Usually have, um, you know, a lot of different internal organ issues. Um, probably the, the, uh, there's just a lot of painful things going on. Let's just say. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the first thing, I don't remember a lot in there. My kidneys were going when I got checked in. So I, I blacked out for several days, got through alcohol withdrawal. I don't remember that. By the time I came to, it was re really just, just in time to become addicted to Dilaudid and morphine in the hospital. So I almost immediately, they offered me, you know, they had the pain chart. They offered me, you know, the pain level, they, the smiley, a frowny face, a straight face, right. a smiley face and a smiley face. Or, sorry, smiley face, straight face, frowny face, frowny crying face. And if you point at the frowny crying face, they're <laughs> going to give you Plotted. solid drugs. Yeah. And, and uh, if you keep doing that, regardless of how, how bad it is for your body. So I got addicted immediately and it made me, I got sicker and sicker and sicker in the hospital. And I spent five weeks there, almost six weeks there. And, and I was just dying, you know, and um, there's nothing they could do for me. I was having blood transfusion, frozen plasma transfusions to try to bring my INR down so that they could do procedures on me, but they didn't do liver transplants there. The, the whole goal was I had to get to some hospital, one of the seven hospitals in California that did transplant or I was going to die. And so we made my dad just hit the pavement running and tried every option possible 
to help save my life. And, and we got denied from just about every transplant hospital, even Cedar sinai where I was born. And um, we finally got a nurse through UCLA who came up with a brilliant plan and essentially said, if you go to Cedars, leave here, like pull everything out of your body, sign yourself out against doctor's orders and go through the emergency room at Cedar sinai and, and don't tell them you've been at a hospital and there's a chance they'll admit you. So that's what we did. And they admitted oh. me and I became my comprehensive transplant patient that day. Um, got stabilized, got looked at. They basically sent me home and said, you know, if we keep you here, we're going to kill you. So you need to stay at home. You need to stay out, take, stop taking your medication. A lot of oh. these medications, we're going to give you a few to take, but you're going to go through withdrawal. Well, they didn't say you're going to go through withdrawal. They right. said stay near a hospital. It's going to be rough. I went through withdrawal. I mean, I, I kept it going. I convinced my dad to take me down to the ER to get shot up three or four times. So, I mean, I could not, it's still to the last minute I was getting my dad to get me dope from various emergency rooms um, because I was dying inside. I didn't know how yeah. to, I didn't have the first clue how to live without alcohol or drugs. And I was scared of fucking everything everything terrified me you know and yeah it was it was very rapid how, how quickly your brain goes from hopelessness to abject hopelessness which is just i need to leave here i need to not be alive because and then you can't kill yourself because you're too scared and then there's this real like shame fulfilling prophecy of where just everything becomes more shameful than the last thing your ideas are shameful your actions are shameful i was shitting myself I couldn't control my bowels. I had ammonia in my brain, so I didn't couldn't talk right. I didn't know what day it was. I was confused. I was sad. I was scared. You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't know how to fight like Rocky. I didn't know what I was doing in there. All I knew yeah. was that I was terrified, and that um, you know, my best friend, not even my best friend, my everything had just been taken away from me, and and I didn't know how to adjust. And and it was just, it was a very a very tough time and i had my first meeting in the hospital before i got checked out before i got broken out you know i came to in my my room and there's three dudes there all dressed up one of them is at the foot of my bed talking about getting through liver failure in prison and my dad is overhearing this he's like what you know you got through liver failure in prison he goes yeah you know three years ago or whatever and this guy's like a little older than me and um my dad was like, holy shit, well, we got to get to it. You know, that was one of the things that really, that was where I met my Eskimo, Kevin. Um, you know, I've been going to obviously meetings ever since, but that was my first meeting. And they they really helped give me a, a spark. They helped initiate something in my dad that said he he might be able to be okay. And from yeah. that, at that, prior to that, they were talking about sending me home on hospice care and there wasn't a lot of hope. And it was just like, how can we get this kid out of here? We, he's just dying in here. This is not good for him or for us. And then this dude came in and it really lit a fire and my dad gave us a lot of hope and, and we just never stopped trying to, to solve the problem and, uh, and it ended up working. That's amazing. The view of the next step is a big deal. Like many of the guests have said that it, a slight adjustment from this is going to fail to I'm going to fight like hell to make it work or that, that small twinkling of hope is it's everything. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And you fight the fight yeah. and here we are today. So um, it's put me on a campaign for my entire life to, to offer access to hope for people. That's yeah. what I went through in, in the hospital and, and not having any hope and uh, 
the 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 depths of depravity mentally and spiritually that that takes you to is, is something that I never want to experience. But on the flip side, I had a lot of people who believed in me. So I had a lot of people that gave me hope and that were hopeful for me in spite of me and who kept pushing me. You know, when I started Marley's Mutts, I didn't want to start Marley's Mutts. You know, it was the thing that saved my life, but I didn't have any self-esteem. I wasn't going to be able to do any of those things. And, and but people kept urging me. People kept giving me hope. People kept saying, you can do this. People kept... And what that led to was some self-esteem and some confidence. And what that led to was, was believing in myself. And what that led to was, you know, finding my purpose and, and, and just walking dogs, just adding dogs to my pack, you know, shelter dogs to my pack and every day trying to put one foot in front of the other so that I can qualify for liver transplant so that I could get one day of sobriety closer to reaching six months. And that's so I could get a little healthier so that my, cause back then my body was too ill to take a right. transplant. I mean, I, my blood was so thin, they couldn't cut me open. That's why I was always having transfusions. It really just, uh, all of the hope that was afforded me, it did not come from within. It came from externally. It came from a God of my understanding. It came from a lot of people. It came from my surroundings and all the, the beauty of the, the, the endless blue sky and these incredible mountains here. It came from all that. It came from my dogs. It came from their, you know, unconditional, like blinding love. There was there were a lot of moments where I just did not want to be alive, you know, and my dogs really gave me that, that understanding that I needed to be here and that I should be here. Um, not only for them, but for something bigger. And while it may not have always been that obvious that that's what we were experiencing, that it, it is that obvious now, you know, that, that that's what we were really um, working towards. In the middle of the fight, nothing might, for me anyway, nothing seems obvious. You'd, I had no fucking idea what to do. I didn't know how to get sober. I didn't know how to be sober. I didn't know how to live sober or clean. And like you said, like when you're through it and you have that, I, my first real moment of being clean, I won't, I won't bore the, the listeners or you with it, but there was, I, I was struggling and that was a, probably a couple of weeks into sobriety and being clean, but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I still don't. I mean, I, I'm not faking it till I make it. I mean, I don't drink and I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. And I work on positive routines, but three weeks in, I a couple weeks in, didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I, I was nervous and scared. I'm going to fail. I'm going to die. And then I had a moment where the, the clouds kind of parted and the sun came and hit me in the face and, and it was raining out here in Chicago. And that was, I really believe that was my higher power, God, my family, my father, giving me a, a, a splash of hope and it's pretty much shaking me loose when you're going, you're doing fine. You're going to make it stay on this path. And that, that was really my, my first moment, even though I was three weeks in, that was my first moment. I felt like I was my first step into being recovered. And, yeah. and it was such a magical thing. And that was the moment I put it all down and looking back on it, like you, you kind of pat around in the dark until you have either that moment or you get through it far enough and you look back and go, fuck, I've come yeah. a long way. And, yeah. and the message for everyone listening is don't give up. Fight like yeah. fucking hell on earth and make yeah. it work. Use the addiction against itself. Get a crew. Get, Get a, crew, a crew, man. That's what I had. I had a crew. I made my job sobriety. You know, yeah. I, I could not walk. I was, I was, you know, I was looking at not being alive anyway. So what did I have to lose? And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. When I got out of the hospital, I, was, I had to go to meeting and I was there on a liver card. So a lot of people will go on court cards. I had to prove I was sober in order to be transplant eligible. So every week I had to send a fax to Cedar sinai showing that I went to meetings. Um, but it saved my life. I mean, everything about that place, it was 
the warmth. It was the acceptance. It was practice. Everywhere yeah. was fucking scary for me. Everywhere was scary. And AA was not, and NA was not scary. I felt like I could practice. I felt like I could fuck up. I felt like I could drop my inhibition and openly interact with people as me. I didn't have to front. I was pretty used to fronting and bullshitting yeah. about who I was. And, and this way I could just be me. And most of them saw me in liver failure. I mean, when I came into there, I couldn't talk. And I kept interrupting. I kept asking for the president. I mean, this is, I'm not kidding. My first meeting, we showed up. It, it's not, Our meeting hall is next to a bar. So we walk into the bar and the bartender, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. they throw you into the fucking lion's den yeah unbelievable and there was four guys in a booth old men and and, uh, looking at my dad because i couldn't walk he was i'm like i guess this is it well shit and we asked the bartender and she's like no honey that's the building behind us (laughs) so we stumbled into there and it was just as weird i'm sitting next to a guy who's got nobody tattooed on his knuckles he identifies as nobody and uh, my dad's going, you're going to die. You know, there's no hope for you. This group of people are out of their minds. I don't know what you're going to do with this Alcoholics Anonymous. The Narcotics Anonymous people are even worse. And I'm thinking I found my people. My dad's thinking you're going to get killed in here. Uh, and it ended up being the best best thing ever. I kept, I, my first meeting, my first several meetings, I interrupted at will. People would be sharing and I would just start talking. Or I would raise my hand. I would raise my hand. Yeah. And then as soon as someone would look at me, I just start talking. You just start. I didn't have no one explained it to me. And they all felt so bad for me because I was I looked like a dead person. I mean, I looked like the. You got to remember, I looked like the sickest sick person you've ever seen. I mean, I was yellow and purple with this huge belly. I mean, I had a herniated belly button, which, you know, it it pops out. I used to duct tape it to my stomach so that you couldn't see it poke through the shirt, you know. It was, uh, oh man, what a time. But yes, I mean, our Alcoholics Anonymous, say, it, it saved my life in so many different ways because it gave me the, the, uh, the opening chapters, um, you know, the, the introductory course into how to live. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But it made me feel so much less lonely. And I had people I could communicate and talk with and it just, it changed everything. But a month after getting out of the hospital, I drank again. You know, my dad had been taking care of me my, for a year and, and he needed to go to Brazil on business. And he left for like 48 hours. He went to Brazil yeah. and I went ahead and found the backup keys to the truck. And I went to the store because I needed to taste it. I hadn't slept in like three days and I just needed to taste it. And then I don't remember anything. I woke up two days later. And I had bottles around me and boxes and I had no idea what happened. And my dad was going to be home in four hours. I, I could feel my inside leaking. You know, I could feel my belly filling and I was in a lot of pain. And my dad came home and he said, he went over to his office and I walked over there and I had my sunglasses on and, and uh, I just looked at him. I, I took off my glasses. I looked at him and, so he could see my eyes that they were yellow. And I said, Hey, we got to go to the hospital. I drank again. And he just went, he looked at me and he was like, couldn't understand that. I said, we have to go to the hospital. I drank again. Yeah. And he just started crying and, and he just started repeating that I'd killed myself. He just kept saying, you've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. I can't believe you've killed yourself. 
and he thought I was going to die. And then he was just going to let me die. He's like, I'm not even driving you to the hospital. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. He was so tired of putting up with my shit. And, uh, and that was the last time I drank. That was October 12, 2008. And that was a big deal. I, for, for anybody who struggles with relapse, if I hadn't have had that relapse, I don't know what would have happened. I, I could, I could very well not be here today because I think I needed to see what I was capable of, what my best thinking was capable of. Then it led me right right back into a bottle. And it wasn't like I even attempted to drink like a gentleman. I mean, I was in liver failure. I mean, end stage liver failure where just a little bit of alcohol makes you vomit. And I had at least two double bottles of wine and a box in two days. Like that's a, that's like 14 bottles of wine. You know, that's a ridiculous amount of alcohol. And it, and it just, it's just what I do, you know? And um, yeah, had it, having not, if I had not had that, big of a fuck up i don't know that it would have taken i, would, I don't know it would have even though i drank myself in a liver failure at 28 i still don't know that i would have understood the gravity of my situation had i not had that so i really think um slips are you know i don't i don't encourage anyone to have a slip but certainly there's no shame in it and and there there are a lot of you can build off of slip situations you know that can make you that can really um fortify your sobriety long term yeah learning to get through the failures um, while we don't, again, I don't advocate slipping up or, or relapsing, but if you do have them uh, build on that failure in terms of the, making it a foundation to, to take the next steps. And, and I think that you're right. It, it's a level set too. Like I really need to focus on this. I, I have to put myself in good positions. I have to mentally be committed to getting and staying sober and winning this fight every fucking day. Like you can't take breaks. I can't take breaks. I, I I'm committed to this and I have to do, I've kind of bent my addiction in, in against itself, but I have to be careful. Um, I can't, I replaced the cocaine with espresso and I would rampage shots of espresso, man. I would do like 10, 12, 14 shots a day. Now I limit myself to one cappuccino in the morning, one double cappuccino. And then I, I heard someone else on the podcast before we kicked off. Can we verify that? <laughs> Anyone else in the room? Can we verify if this is true? <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I, um, so now I legitimately uh, keep it down to one double espresso and I have tea and I'm drinking tea right now. That's, that's what I, I have here. Right. And I, 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 but like you said, I, you have to, I have to, I have to be diligent and aware of what the yeah. fuck is going on because if I don't, it can get carried away quick. I too limit myself to one cup of coffee. <laughs> it's like a gallon cup. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So Marley's Mutts, man. Yeah. Love it. Let's let's talk about that and how what, sure. what got you there and, and what it what it means for you today. Cause I love yeah. this part of the recovery, like what life is well, like. Well, Marley's Mutts was was what what made what helped me survive. You know, Marley's Mutts was it started out. I, I was in rescue for several years before I got sick just trying to help out, trying to find something I was passionate about. It was done here locally. But then when I got sick, I started fostering and I'd started, I'd fostered many, many dogs for several years with them and started the large dog foster program. And so when I got sick, it was something to get back into because I needed to have my mind on something productive. I was going to kill myself or fall into addiction if I didn't have something else to focus myself on and focusing on the dogs was re critically important. Um, what it afforded me was time to, uh, you know, I, I walk, I, I am uh, bouncing around in the neighborhood of my mind at such a frenetic, chaotic, unbalanced, natural pace that it's just, it's, it's not good. 
you yeah. know, and, and my dogs help, especially then my dogs help slow me down and, and it helps put my mental energy and my mental anxiety and fret into them. So all of my, this, this really confused, unproductive energy about, I can't drink. What am I supposed to do? Who am I? I'm 29. My, I'm in liver failure. Blah, 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 blah. I could put it into, I'm dealing with, here's a 10 year old black Labrador with a broken foot. How am I going to get him to, or here's a litter of eight puppies um, with Parvo. How am I going to set, you know, so I, my efforts went into taking care of them. So every day from sun up until sundown, I occupied myself with either meetings or dogs. That's all I did. The first thing I did in the morning was walk as far as I could get. I'd take several dogs with me and then we'd walk several times throughout the day. We'd go to meetings, we'd go on hikes and it was just, I got better and better and better. When I started, when I first got out of the hospital, I could barely walk. I mean, barely. Yeah. Uh, and I needed assistance. And then by the time I started working with my dogs, a couple months later, I, I, I started to morph into a different person. I mean, every, I went to Cedars every week for appointments because I was so d delicate, sometimes twice a week. And they kept saying, we don't know what the fuck you're doing to yourself, but this is working. So keep it up. And, and prior to that point, there wasn't anybody that had recovered from end stage liver disease. It's not something that gets better. You either die or you get a transplant. You're not supposed right. to get better. You're not supposed to heal from cirrhosis of the liver, but that's exactly what started happening. And Marley's mutts saved my life. It, it got me off onto a path where I was taking care of myself so that I could take care of the dogs. It got to the point where I was starting to love myself because of the work I was doing. It got the point where I found tremendous purpose and, and drive in what I was doing. And I was really good at it. Yeah. So I all, combined all these things and, and it became a career. And fast forward 12 years now, and we have you know, rescued thousands and thousands of dogs. And we have a big therapy program. And we've helped get our county from 80% euthanasia down to below 10%. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah. And we uh, run the one of the largest prison dog programs in America. You know, we have prison um, inmate canine training programs at six state prisons here in California and one girls juvenile facility, the only girls juvenile rescue dog program in America. And so we work with I work with countless, you know, men in recovery and in prison and, and in our program. I got a stack of letters behind me from uh, guys that I communicate with that are in our program. A lot of our guys have been released from prison after very long sentences. We deal primarily with violent offenders and they've gotten jobs in the pet industry and are doing us very proud. Some of them are my closest friends. Almost all of them have maintained their sobriety if, if sobriety was something they had a problem with. So um, yeah, I found an incredible substance abuse program parallel uh, with Marley's Mutts. We've done a lot of work with uh, recovery facilities, um, my mom, as you know, uh, who you're going to have on next week, my yeah. mom is, was the program director at the mission for the women's program, which is a program she graduated, you know, so my, my mom was the vice president of marketing at, at, at Disney for TV and film, the youngest and the only woman at the time in the eighties. And, um, she hit rock bottom and ended up at a homeless center called the mission at Kern County. And we started a program there, a 12 step program of dog training and recovery that my mom helped us kick off when she was directing there. So um, there's a lot of fun stuff we do with the parallels of um, dog rescue and people rescue. So one of our yeah. mottos is, is uh, rescue dogs, rescuing people, because that's what happened with me. And that's what we do in prison. That's what we do with at all the facilities we work at. And we even have a bunch of different foster dogs that are being fostered at sober living facilities. 
specifically mini marvels, which I love. And hey, before we cut this off too, we have to get to Chicago. I've got a wonderful Chicago sobriety tie-in. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. We run the Chicago Marathon every year. I'll, I'll show you some pictures on the on the wall. It falls on my sober birthday. It falls on roughly the oh, nice. first second week of October. Yeah. So my birthday's the twelfth. So we started running it eight years ago, and uh, as a challenge because I had you know been in liver failure. And and Nadine and Bradley, who's one of my best friends, she Nadine Griffith, sorry, and uh, she basically signed us up for it. And then we've just been adding people every year. So it's become our biggest fundraiser. We all get tattooed. I got the stars. I don't know if you can. Nice. See wow. Um, you really are all into there. Chicago. That's fantastic. I got them. We got him Holy there. shit! Yeah, if you people can't see everywhere. this, he's got the the flat the stars from the Chicago flag tattooed twice on himself. That's fantastic. We'll get a third time. I, we run it. I run it four times or five times. The team has run it eight times. Wow! And um, I had back surgery, so it's precluded me from participating in certain uh, races. But um, but we love Chicago, man. It's a place where we. Um, we all congregate to, to spread Marley's mutts and, and the, our ideals and rescue principles. And, and Chicago has become kind of our home away from home. I absolutely love it there. We did some big presentations at the, the new Apple store there. Yeah. And uh, we, we presented on our positive change prison program and just a really special place. We love it. I love that, man. Um, Chicago is a great city, man. It's definitely a hardworking city and it's the kind of city you can live in and you, it's not a bullshit city. Like they, you'll get, People tell you what the fuck is going on around here, man. <laughs> like, yeah, you know? sure. And I love that about Chicago, you know, uh, yeah. much like New York, um, unlike L.A., as much as I I'm not talking shit about L.A., but I think L.A., people tell you what you want to hear versus New York and Chicago to tell you what the fuck they're going to tell you. And that's sure. it. Sure. <laughs> I love I've been in a lot of meetings in Chicago because I always take a chip there, um, you know, because we, we run right around my birthday. And I love it there, man. I really, I love walking to meetings. I love some of the places we've had meetings. Yeah. It's a wonderful spot. I love it. I was the tr true story, man. I'm walking back. So I taken a, I think it was seven. I just turned seven and I'm walking. I got my seven chip. I'm so stoked. I was all the way on the other side of town because it was the only late meeting I could find. And I jump off the curb. I'm on cloud nine. I got uh, like earphones and I'm listening to the music. And I bump into this dude as I jump off the curb and I put both my arms on. I'm like, hey, man, I'm so sorry, bud. Yeah. And it's Rahm Emanuel. And his, as soon as I put my arms on his shoulders, his bodyguards behind me, they go, fucking tackle Sir! you. Like, Jesus, what? You know, and, and he goes, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. And I go, oh, no, okay. Uh, have, a, have a great day. I didn't get to go into my, I'm seven years sober today. Can I have a hug? But um, I thought yeah, it was well, you're lucky it was uh, Mayor Emanuel and not one of the Mayor Dailies. If it were either of the Dailies, they would have shot you on sight after touching sure. <laughs> either Daily. Yeah. But so Rob Emanuel, um, but that's awesome, man. And uh, I've never met him, but he he seems like a nice guy. And the fact that did he give you a hug by the way for your sobriety day? Yeah, he was totally cool with it. He was he was, he was really cool about it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's so fucking yeah. great. Yeah. Awesome, dude. So where can people find and support your efforts? Uh, with Marley's Mutts because I think it's cool. And I know I'd, one of the things I for sure want you to point out is I know that you have a link for a wish list on Amazon where people can buy supplies and support you that yeah, way. Yeah, so. we have all kinds of stuff. So you can go to marleysmutts.org. Uh, the two big fundraisers we're working on right now is Home on the Range, which is a, a kennel, a proper special needs medical kennel for our special needs dogs. You, can, you can't see in my office with me, but I have three special needs dogs with me. One super senior 
one three-legged uh, chihuahua with two broken front legs, and then my oh. two-legged poodle who uh, only has her back legs. She's out running around now. So we're raising money for that that kennel facility um, so that we can have. It's really we live up here in the mountains, and we need something temperature regulated. And then the other is to, uh, continuing education for our formerly incarcerated. So we run all these programs in prison, and we want to have an opportunity to, to continue their substance abuse program education, and more importantly, their vocational education so that they can get jobs in the pet industry, the $70 billion pet industry. Um, so that's our, those are our focuses. That's what um, folks can donate to on the website. You can find us on social media at Marley's Mutts Dog Rescue or at Marley's Mutts. You can find me, Zach Scouge, Z-A-C-H-S-K-O-W on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can find us on YouTube as well. But yeah, marleysmutts.org is the main um, place where you find all our stuff and, and you can, it, it's pretty fun. You know, we take you inside the rescue experience and, uh, it's a, it's a really entertaining, entertaining social channel. You know, you'll, I think you'll find it pretty uplifting and, and, uh, worthwhile. It has truly, truly been my honor to get to know you, have you on the show and learn all the great things that you're doing today and what you did to get there, man. So yeah, uh, man. nothing this but mad it. props. Yeah, this was a ball, man. I really enjoyed t- talking to you. And uh, very much congratulations on your three years. And please, when my mom is on, don't go easy on her. Dig deep. Get her to, get her to not give you the cookie cut, 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 cut her answers. I saw too many times at meetings, mom mom just gets on that, that uh, top layer of shares. And I want mom to get deep. Start talking to me about some trauma, mom. If I'll I hit her. I'll hit her with a couple of questions, some high, low, and high, mid, mid, mid-range yeah. questions, and get her all, you know, frazzled. And I'll, I'll definitely make her work for it. Were, so, so that I can get some answers to my own childhood. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> awesome, dude. Uh, truly, truly great to have you on the show, yeah. buddy. Have a great day, and I will stay in touch for sure. When you come to Chicago, if we can get back around to it, um, I will meet you. I'm not going to run the race, but I'll come and meet you in person and in your crew, man. I'd love to get to know everybody in Sounds person. Sounds like a plan, man, for sure. Awesome, bro.